So I, I'm excited to talk today about some of my uh, recent and ongoing work related to the topic of how algorithms are used in public policy, uh, both the opportunities and the limits of this work. Um, it's less a sort of singular project with a, with a defined thesis and more an exploration of a couple of different topics that I've been working on with some thoughts about how they fit together um, and how we might go about the, the project of developing, analyzing, evaluating, and governing algorithms in the public sector. Uh, so about, uh, I approach this work uh, through a, a quite interdisciplinary experience and background and approach. Uh, my primary background is in computer science with a focus in data science, but I also draw heavily on STS, on legal theory, social and political theory, um, in an attempt to understand and move away from a model of thinking about these algorithms merely as technical tools uh, that we can study through formal mathematical models, but to understand them in their socio-technical and political context as tools of policy and politics uh, that we need to understand in that broader light. So I'll divide my talk into three broad themes today. The first will be an introduction of some of the promise and perils of government algorithms. Uh, I'll then describe some uh, work on uh, both experimental and policy relevant work on uh, algorithmic decision making. And then finally, I'll close by describing some uh, ideas around a model of algorithmic development and work that I describe as algorithmic realism. So we can start by just thinking about some of the promise of government algorithms. Uh, across the field of computing and in society more generally, in recent years, there's been wide excitement about using data and algorithms to improve public policy. Uh, we can see this in developments around smart cities, efforts to improve public safety, public health, uh, and social welfare using algorithms, uh, often with uh, media and press releases touting the incredible benefits of these tools. But as more of these systems have been implemented and studied, it's become clear that what looks like the promise of these tools often involves significant and unexpected challenges and social harms connected to algorithms. Uh, and I'll list a couple of quick examples. So one comes from Virginia Eubanks's book, Automating Inequality, where she describes the implementation of two algorithmic systems in California and Pennsylvania, one to address homelessness and another to reduce child abuse. Both systems were intended to improve social welfare and in many ways technically appear capable of doing so, but because of how these algorithms interacted with existing social inequalities and oppressive policies within the institutions they were being used, they ended up criminalizing poverty, enhancing surveillance, and increasing the vulnerability of the very people they were originally intended to benefit. Another example is from the Boston Public Schools, which several years ago worked with researchers at MIT to develop an algorithm to improve the scheduling of bus routes. Once again, this algorithm seemed uh, within the the model itself to be capable of improving a variety of outcomes. Yet when it came time to actually begin implementing this algorithm, there was significant public pushback in part because of how the proposed changes recommended by the algorithm 
would have affected families' day-to-day -day lives with particular harms and impacts on low-income and non-white families in the city. And finally, we can look at uh, an example from Chicago Police Department's old strategic subjects list, which was used to identify individuals at high risk of being involved in gun violence uh, with, an, with a, an effort to helpfully to uh, improve preventative interventions. But rather than reducing violence, being placed on this list resulted in an increased chance of being arrested that was unrelated to any actual difference in outcomes, in large part because being placed on the list meant that officers were using the list in an unexpected way, more as leads or suspects in shooting cases, as individuals of high interest and high suspicion, rather than uh, individuals for whom their original, some of the original ideas around providing social services and other types of preventative interventions might be in place. So what's particularly notable about all of these cases is that none of them involve instances of immediately bad or flawed engineering, or at least not at the heart of what turned out to be uh, the social harms and issues involved with these algorithms. What we instead see in each of these cases in different ways is that various issues arose when these algorithms uh, were moved into the realm of implementation, when they interacted with public policy, social contexts, and human decision makers to produce unexpected impacts. So this raises this broader question around the relationship between algorithms and social change, particularly in public policy. Uh, and two questions become uh, particularly salient in light, of this, uh, in, in light of this pattern. One is to better understand what leads so many algorithmic policy interventions to have unjust social impacts. And second is how can policy, algorithmic policy interventions robustly promote a more egalitarian society and contribute to more just governance? We see in a sense, uh, at least in the US, these sort of twin moments where on the one hand, we are imagining new modes of governance, new broad ambitious types of public policy. At the same time, there's also this effort to imp uh, integrate algorithms and data into government decision-making. And often these two uh, modes are in tension with one another and the impacts of these algorithms uh, are quite harmful. Yet we also might want to think more broadly uh, if we, how we might reimagine the role of algorithms in public policy, how we might use them to, to hopefully promote and develop a reimagined uh, re forms of governance and public policy uh, rather than the types of patterns that we tend to see today. And so we have this broad question of what would it take to uh, achieve both to mitigate the harms of algorithmic policy and to achieve a fundamentally different role for algorithms in public policy. When I think about this question, I see five major barriers, um, five major categories of issues that lead to the types of issues that we commonly see and prevent different modes of algorithmic governance from being achieved. Uh, so this includes first, neoliberal political economies and logics of governance. Algorithms are often pursued through a logic of efficiency, 
uh, and privatization through public-private partnerships with major tech companies. Uh, we can see this particularly in efforts to achieve smart cities, for instance. We have punitive and carceral institutions where efforts to collect data and make predictions about individuals often fall into the trap of being part of punitive public policies, surveillance, law enforcement, and punishment. Uh, even, and this is true even in cases where data is collected by uh, governments that originally have no explicit relationship to law enforcement, but always seems to end up being used in that manner in practice. Uh, we have undemocratic production and governance of technology, uh, an incredible lack of diversity in the technology education and industry, as well as communities typically being excluded from algorithmic dis governance decisions. Very uh, often these decisions and developments happen in behind closed doors in incredibly shrouded ways. Uh, we have limited theories of social change for algorithms. We have actually quite narrow goals for what we want our algorithms to achieve in terms of the types of reforms that are being promoted. And finally, we have significant limitations to algorithmic methodology. And this last one is really where I'll uh, focus uh, most of the rest of my remarks today, um, but significant limitations to how algorithmic thought and design even approaches questions of uh, social contexts and public policy reform. But with all of these together, what I think we, we have this sort of paradox where efforts to integrate algorithms into public policy are simultaneously too ambitious and not ambitious enough. On the one hand, we often fall into a techno-utopian trap of solutionism, of thinking that technology can solve social problems that are uh, incredibly intractable, that technology could never possibly hope to solve. It's certainly not on its own. But at the same time, we're also not ambitious enough in the scope of reforms that we actually tend to promote with algorithms. Typically, algorithms are deployed to optimize existing policies, uh, optimize existing services, and ways of doing business in government that in, in, in and of themselves are often fundamentally flawed or fundamentally broken and actually represent the root cause of many of the issues that we're trying to solve. So if we want to uh, more fully grapple with the perils and opportunities of algorithms, we have to deal, find ways to deal, if not simultaneously, then at least in a complementary fashion with all of these different barriers. Uh, I don't think we'll be able to achieve uh, achieve the types of outcomes that we might want just by looking at one of these in isolation. And to do this, we need to take an incredibly uh, interdisciplinary approach. Uh, certainly questions of computer science and algorithm design remain relevant, but we also have to think about science and technology studies or STS, political economy, law, social and political theory, philosophy, and more. Uh, to be able to think about all of these issues uh, in their collective fashion. So let's jump into one specific dimension of uh, the role of algorithms in public policy, which is algorithmic decision-making or how algorithms are integrated into policy decision-making processes. Uh, 
And when we think about this, we want to, it's important to properly conceptualize what these decision-making processes look like. Now, if you take a sort of standard computer science approach to studying uh, algorithms, we tend to take algorithms as being sort of a final arbiter. The evaluations focus on how well does this algorithm perform? What are its characteristics? How accurate are its predictions? Do they meet various uh, standards that we might care about for fairness? Can we understand how those decisions are made? And so on. But there's sort of this very narrow frame where what we care about is how does the algorithm make predictions or decisions? Yet, if we look at the vast majority of cases where algorithms are being integrated into public policy, what we actually have are algorithms being used as aids to human decision makers. So uh, in the context, for instance, of risk assessments, uh, pretrial risk assessments in the criminal justice system, what you have is a human, a judge who has to make a decision whether to release or detain a defendant uh, before their trial, and algorithms that are pre presenting predictions about a defendant's likelihood to fail to appear in court or to be arrested before their trial, um, presenting information to that human judge who has to make a decision. So no matter how well we characterize the particular specifications of an algorithm like a risk assessment on its own, we actually can't fully understand its impacts unless we also study how people are responding to and using those algorithms in practice. So we can think about this in relation to a common paradigm in algorithm development and discussions where what we'll often have uh, when we think about an algorithm making a decision Sometimes we'll have a human involved in the process of helping to train and tune that algorithm. And we'll call that a human in the loop process. And this is sort of a common phrase for thinking about the role of humans in helping to ensure that an algorithm is operating correctly. But what we have in these public policy instances is something actually quite different, a little bit of the reverse of this situation, where we have humans who make decisions, people like judges, and algorithms that are increasingly being incorporated into the human decision-making process. And so what we really want to think about here is algorithm-in-the-loop systems. And this, this perspective can help open up new frames for questions and analysis, allowing us to focus on how the algorithm and the human are interacting, but ultimately, at the end of the day, centering the role of the human as the final decision maker. What we actually care about ultimately is not how the algorithm makes decisions, but how an algorithm affects the ways in which humans make decisions and the particular decisions or predictions that they make. So this is a question then, this is a, or a topic that I've been studying uh, for a couple of years, running a series of experiments to understand a variety of questions. And I want to talk today about this question of how do risk assessments affect human decision-making processes? Uh, how does being shown a risk assessment, for instance, affect how someone uh, evaluates or considers different trade-offs and different factors when making decisions about whether to release or detain 
uh, defendants before trial, whether to provide uh, government loans, for instance, and other types of decisions. So at a very high level, uh, the way that I'm going to approach this work, and I'll provide a little bit more detail on methodology in a few slides, is that when we wanna look at this process of how does a human make predictions and how do those predictions lead to decisions, and we wanna compare people's behavior both with and without a, the aid of an algorithm. So we wanna look at human decision-making processes uh, in two different settings, one in which they are, people are presented with a predictive algorithm and one in which they are not. So a couple of areas of, let's list a couple of areas of related work to help sort of ground uh, what this question, why this question is relevant and what we might find here. So one of the key things sort of as I was describing earlier is that when we talk about the role of algorithms in policy, what we tend to focus on is predictions rather than decisions. There's often an emphasis, uh, the evaluations of these algorithms and claims about the benefits of public sector algorithms tend to directly compare uh, the ability of both algorithms and humans to make predictions and emphasize the benefits of algorithms as being more accurate uh, than, than humans and not subject to the types of biases uh, that psychologists and behavioral economists and others have demonstrated in, in human, de human decision-making. Um, but there's often, there's rarely considered is this gap between uh, making predictions of a particular outcome, the likelihood of a particular outcome, and an actual decision, a policy decision that has to be made based on those predictions. Second is that there's a common assumption that risk assessments inform predictions, uh, but don't change the decision-making process. So when we do look at how these predictions are being factored into decisions, the idea is that risk assessments or other predictions are simply providing information to human decision makers and that those human decision makers can simply act on more accurate information than they otherwise would have. Um, let's skip over that. So looking at then this question, what we wanted to see was uh, how might, if we present a series of participants with the predictions of a predictive risk assessment, uh, which is emphasizing the risk of a particular outcome, uh, such as uh, re-arrest or defaulting on a loan, uh, will people place more emphasis on reducing risk when making decisions? In other words, will they not just change the decisions themselves in response to this information, but will they actually change the way in which they are considering risk and other factors when making decisions. And this would be particularly notable because uh, this type of shift would amount essentially to a change, in, uh, a change in public policy in terms of the balancing act that goes into uh, making various policy decisions. So in, in contrast to something like simply improving people's capacity to predict risk accurately, which is already sort of part of the process, this would represent uh, an increased emphasis where risk becomes a more salient factor or a more heavily weighted factor in the decision-making process. And because risk is intertwined with legacies of racial discrimination, uh, 
risk of being arrested, risk of defaulting on loans, and so on. This type of policy, policy shift that uh, leads risk to have greater salience is likely to exacerbate racial disparities. So I'll give sort of a, a sort of high level overview of how we went about approaching this question. Um, and I'll, I'll be happy to talk more about some of the methodological components uh, in Q&A if that's of interest, but don't wanna get too bogged down with, uh, with all of those details here. Um, but broadly, we started by developing a risk assessment, acquiring historical data from the US Department of Justice, using that to make predictions about particular pretrial defendants, about their likelihoods to be arrested or uh, not appear for, for trial. Um, and we then ran a series of experiments on Amazon Mechanical Turk uh, with over 2000 people asking them to uh, evaluate 30 to 40 defendants uh, and uh, make either predictions about their likelihoods to uh, exhibit particular outcomes or to actually make decisions such as whether to release or detain defendants. Um, so we did this in two different settings, one being pretrial risk assessments, another being uh, government home improvement loans. I'll talk just about the former uh, for the sake of this talk. Um, so an important caveat then just to remember as I talk about this study and these results are that these are not evaluations of actual judges making decisions in practice, but instead are the behaviors of lay people in the United States on Mechanical Turk making these decisions. Um, so what we can say then is not that these results are sort of a perfect encapsulation of what is happening in the courtroom, uh, even though there are some reasons to believe that the behaviors of lay people and judges do uh, can have notable overlaps, but also just to be able to highlight the types of unexpected behaviors and impacts that arise when we put algorithms uh, into, into practice, into people's uh, decision-making in ways that often directly contradict many, uh, uh, much of how uh, these algorithms and people's use of these algorithms is described in public policy. So what we have is people being asked either to make a prediction of uh, someone's risk or to make a binary decision uh, about what to do with that defendant to actually place themselves in the role of a judge and decide whether to release or detain a defendant. Uh, and people did this across two different settings. So we have a control setting where people are making these predictions or decisions just based on a text sort of narrative profile about defendants uh, and a treatment setting where we have people making these decisions uh, with the profile as well as the output of a risk assessment algorithm uh, that is making a prediction about the particular defendant in question. So what this enables us to do is to evaluate people's behavior uh, on, the same, on the exact same defendants, both with and without uh, the information provided by a risk assessment. Um, so people are split into these two different groups, either being shown a risk assessment or not shown a risk assessment, and are further split into a treatment where they're either only making predictions about defendants or they're only making decisions about defendants. Um, so we can think about a couple of different 
uh, break down the effects of risk assessments on these different processes uh, into four different settings, whether or not people's process of making predictions is affected by a risk assessment and whether or not people's processes for making decisions is affected by a risk assessment. So what we have is uh, sort of as a baseline, if without any risk assessment at all, people are making decisions without any algorithm, uh, we have what I describe as setting one, where both the sort of prediction-making process and the decision-making process are unaffected by a risk assessment. Uh, this next quadrant I'll ignore because it's clearly contradicted by a variety of uh, research. But then we get to this bottom row, which is sort of where the interesting, uh, the interesting debate is. So in this bottom left quadrant, what we have is a setting three, where the prediction-making process is affected by the risk assessment, but the decision-making process is not. And this is the common assumption that uh, we see in public policy and in efforts to implement algorithms, where the presenting someone, a decision-maker with an algorithm improves their ability to make predictions, but doesn't end up affecting how they make decisions in light of uh, the information that they have essentially doesn't change the manner in which they balance different considerations in making these decisions. In setting four, however, which is sort of the, the setting that we hypothesize that we'll see in this study, uh, we see that not only, we suggest that not only is the prediction making process affected, but also through effects of, uh, of priming and framing, that being shown a risk assessment will also change how people uh, actually incorporate a consideration of risk into their decisions. So to jump ahead and into just some of the core results here, uh, we can look at how the decision-making function uh, actually shifts. So what we want to look at here is as a function of people's perceived risk, about particular defendants, uh, how likely were they to opt to detain those defendants? Now, certainly we expect to see a, uh, a positive sloping line here, where as the perception of risk about a particular individual increases, we would expect the likelihood of that person being detained to increase. Um, and the question is, how do, the, how do these curves, how does this uh, relationship differ when, between the control and treatment group, where one group was shown the risk assessment and one was not. Uh, and what we see is we can compare this yellow and blue curve uh, and see uh, that the yellow curve, which is the group that was shown the risk assessment, has a steeper, uh, a steeper increase function. So at lower levels of risk, uh, the group that was shown the risk assessment is less likely to opt to detain defendants but at higher levels of risk, the group shown the risk assessment is more likely to detain, to opt to detain defendants. So essentially, and we can backtrack this through some of the math that we use to generate this chart, but essentially risk is becoming a greater factor uh, distinguishing between the re release and detention when the risk assessment is shown. And through simulations, we can actually compare the effect of, uh, of this shift on the racial disparity uh, in this study on the detention rate. So essentially how much more likely are black defendants to be detained than white defendants. And what we find is that the, uh, the shift to setting four 
this shift where the decision-making process is also changing, increase the racial disparity in detention by approximately 2% compared to if we had the expected behavior where all that was happening is that the risk assessment is improving the ability to make predictions. Um, so let me just summarize some of these, some of these key results um, and some of their implications. So first is this broader idea of indeterminacy. So what we see here is that the risk assessments are increasing the emphasis that individual decision makers are placing on reducing risk when making decisions, uh, which is both akin to a significant shift in sort of the normative bases for public policy, but also creates this process of indeterminacy where the adoption of, of algorithms can have very different impacts than we expect in practice because of unexpected uses of people. And this beyond just this in this particular study, uh, this has been borne out in other experimental studies, as well as a variety of empirical studies on how judges and other decision makers actually use, uh, use algorithms in practice. And what we see is that their uses in practice are very different than what we expect uh, when we first opt to adopt or implement an algorithm. Uh, where the actual effects are quite different and often there are racial and other biases that arise, not just from the algorithm itself, but also from the way in which people are interacting with and being influenced by the algorithm. And we can also then turn to focusing on the need then for this algorithm in the loop approach. If we want to properly understand and manage the impacts of algorithmic decision-making, we have to account for how humans actually interact with these tools. We have to move from a understanding of algorithms as particular technical tools that we can analyze just through their technical specifications to thinking about what happens when we put them out into the world, into practice and public policy. And this work raises particular challenges because it actually contradicts on the most common, one of the common modes for governing algorithmic decision-making. What we see if you look at a variety of court cases and public policies is that as concerns about algorithms have been raised, questions of inaccuracy and bias, often uh, there is a reliance or falling back on uh, human oversight as tools to ensure that the algorithms are producing desirable effects. Um, in the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court case, State v. Loomis, the Supreme Court described that staff and courts should exercise discretion when, when assessing a risk score with respect to individual defendants. The European General Data Protection Regulation uh, essentially prohibits uh, in the vast majority of cases uh, profiling or automated processing based solely on an algorithm. Uh, we can look at the Canadian directive on automated decision-making, which for certain types of settings uh, mandates that decisions cannot be made without having specific human intervention points during the decision-making process. And the final decision must be made by a human. And this all sounds uh, reassuring, 
Yet, when we actually look at experiments like what I was just describing, as well as a variety of empirical evidence, what we see is that people are actually quite uh, unable in most cases to provide the types of oversight that these policies are essentially calling for. Um, they, people struggle to uh, identify when they should or should not rely on algorithmic predictions. Uh, they struggle to evaluate the quality of predictions to know when a prediction is a reliable one and when that prediction is not reliable. Uh, and the use of the algorithm, as I just showed, can actually change people's decision-making in subtle but undesirable ways, even if they are still maintaining the discretion to make final decisions. So what we have here is what I think of as sort of a paradox of algorithmic decision-making or a paradox of discretion, where we have, uh, we have concerns about how humans are making decisions, concerns about bias and inaccuracy. So we then try to implement algorithms to uh, improve upon those decision-making processes to obtain better accuracy, better reliability. Yet because we have concerns about the ability of those algorithms to make decisions in a fair and just manner, we then put those same humans back into the process, uh, put them into the role of overseeing the very algorithms that were put in place to improve their own processes. And so we have this, this process where most public policy is calling for this type of collaboration uh, that doesn't actually tend to hold up under scrutiny of what, uh, how do these collaborations actually work in practice. Um, and so I think this is a major challenge for thinking about uh, the role of algorithms in public decision-making and also touches on broad and fundamental questions about what the proper roles for standardization versus discretion and subjectivity are in public policy. I think in large part, we've ended up in this, uh, in this type of situation because, uh, because we have sort of conflicting desires when it comes to discretion and subjectivity. On the one hand, we are fearful in policy of decisions that are made by humans who can have biases and uh, flawed perceptions. Yet at the same time, as we begin to remove uh, those types of discretion and move towards more automated systems of judgment, suddenly we start to feel that there's more of a need for human oversight and human discretion. And so grappling with these fundamental challenges of how decisions should be made and what values we want to promote in different contexts is ultimately going to be essential for thinking about how can we actually uh, balance the roles of humans and algorithms in a variety of different contexts. So I wanna shift gears now for the last portion of the talk to thinking about how this connects to broader methodologies and broader methodological challenges in algorithm design and evaluation. So why should we care about, about method? Um, algorithmic reasoning has become an increasingly prominent mode of theorizing about questions of equality and public policy. These algorithms are both directly shaping, uh, shaping how decisions and policies are being evaluated and made and are becoming a sort of uh, 
expert language or dominant and well-regarded language for even thinking about what sorts of values we should promote, how we should evaluate how decisions are made. Yet we have to care about then what these types of methodologies and logics are capable of identifying and representing. If the modes of understanding the world that we uh, use are unable to properly represent core social realities and contexts, then those methodologies will be unable to provide a productive guide for efforts to achieve any sort of better or more equal society. And so this question of algorithmic methodology is particularly important because the process of developing government algorithms is very different from the standard process or standard roles that algorithms might play. Now, certainly standard algorithmic challenges are relevant, questions of data and algorithmic design and so on. Yet, when we think about incorporating algorithms into public policy, there are many other factors and considerations that become important in ways that they're not necessarily in a sort of theoretical computer science realm or in the realm of, uh, you know, you think about an undergraduate or graduate class in algorithm design. So what are some of these other dimensions? So as we just saw, there are questions of human algorithm interactions. There are questions of the social and political impacts, the types of institutions and public policies that these algorithms are embedded in, what types of policies are they enhancing or facilitating or promoting. There are questions around theories of reform. Uh, what types of change and policy reform are algorithms actually providing and are they providing uh, desirable types of social reform, questions of governance, questions of democracy, even questions of infrastructure around what sorts of uh, knowledge and processes and tools are required uh, both are, are required to enable algorithms to be used effectively in government. So all of these questions, all of these topics become relevant in a way that uh, is quite distinct from standard algorithmic practice. Yet when we think about uh, and this raises a significant challenge. So when we think about uh, sort of the central tenets of computer science, what we often have is this adherence to formalism, this idea that algorithmic logics provide a language to let you cleanly express underlying questions that we can formalize notions uh, into mathematical language to uh, operate and manipulate and study them in that form. And Certainly as, uh, you know, if we look at some of the achievements of computer science, it's certainly the case that this type of formalism can be incredibly valuable. Yet as computer science or as algorithms moves into these processes of, uh, of public policy, all of these other dimensions become relevant yet are unable to be captured uh, for the most part by this type of formalism. And so we run into significant challenges. So, uh, I describe this idea of algorithmic formalism, uh, building on a lot of the, the work from STS and cri critical algorithm studies and other fields, but to look at some of the limits of standard algorithmic logics when applied to social and policy interventions. So algorithmic formalism embodies uh, 
commitments to objectivity and neutrality, to universalism and to internalism, which in turn uh, are in part responsible for how these types of interventions can often lead to entrenching unjust social conditions, imposing algorithmic logics uh, at the expense of others, and to this process that I described earlier of indeterminacy. So in thinking about how we might uh, reform these types of processes, uh, I and, and a co-author uh, turned to a process in law, sort of an evolution in legal thought that was uh, from about a century ago where US legal thought was also grappling with the limits of particular types of formalism. And uh, I won't go into too much detail on this process, but we can look at uh, sort of this idea of legal formalism where the law was considered to be like a science. It consists of certain principles or doctrines and through the internal logic of, uh, of legal principles and thoughts, we can deduce the correct answer in every case. And uh, over the course of the late 19th century into the early 20th century, there was this shift to legal realism, uh, a shift in how we understand what the law is and what the law operates uh, that I, I like, I think is well summarized by this quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes saying that the prophecies of what the courts will do in fact and nothing more are what I mean by the law. And one, we can sort of see how this connects uh, to some of the work I was describing, this algorithm in the loop process, for instance, where what we ultimately care about when we're studying algorithms is not how that algorithm operates uh, internally, whether or not the predictions are uh, just how accurate the predictions are, for instance, even though that is certainly important. But what we care about is what happens when those algorithms get used. How do they actually affect uh, behavior? How do they affect public policy? Um, and so drawing on, on this work and on these evolutions in modes of thought, uh, I'll close by proposing uh, a couple of different modes around what an alternative approach of algorithmic realism could look like uh, and what some of the benefits of that approach might be, um, admittedly uh, for just a couple of minutes in relatively high level terms, although I think uh, there's certainly, we can think about what this would look like in a more tractable fashion. So the first shift that we would want to make is from this idea of objectivity and neutrality to a more political understanding, an understanding of algorithms and algorithmic designers as political tools. And one thing that this can help us grapple with are questions of, uh, are questions of reform. What types of reforms are desirable and how might algorithms be integrated into those processes of reform? Uh, so, one of the oftentimes there's there's often this dialogue in uh, computer science discussions around you know what types of reforms algorithms uh, provide and because algorithms do admittedly provide a particular type of incrementalist reform uh, there's often this notion of don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good um, and so we we have to start to think about how we might think more broadly about connecting the particular types of reforms that algorithms provide to broader theories of social change that can really grapple with more rigorously the relationship between 
uh, incremental reforms and more radical change uh, and breaking down the false dichotomy or distinction that's often made between these two types of reforms. The second is shifting from a mode of universalist understanding to a more contextual understanding of where and how algorithms do or do not apply, uh, opening us up to questions around oh, sorry, uh, how algorithms align with particular uh, values and contexts and theories of change, and particularly enabling us to better see uh, or better approach algorithms through this ideal of agnosticism, uh, approaching algorithms as means rather than ends, uh, appreciating what they can provide instrumentally, connecting that to these broader theories of change, but ultimately prioritizing the social impacts of reform rather than emphasizing the need to have algorithms play a role if they're not appropriate. And finally, we need to shift from an internalist mode of thought that really emphasizes the mathematical formalisms to a more porous approach that can begin to see the, the need to consider other factors, other modes of reasoning uh, beyond the algorithm itself or the sort of formal mathematical elements of the algorithm itself. Um, and as just one example, this can help uh, help us appreciate these sources of indeterminacy that I was describing earlier uh, and can help our understanding of these tools better analyze and account for those types of indeterminacy by uh, moving from treating these algorithms as independent technical systems to part of broader socio-technical systems that need to be evaluated through a variety of different methods and through a variety of uh, even different modes of trying to understand what they are. So in sum, I think that these ideals of algorithmic re uh, realism can provide a sort of roadmap for building a more socio-technical and politi politically conscious and policy conscious uh, mode of algorithmic design and evaluation that is as rigorous regarding the social context and social impacts as it is regarding algorithms themselves. This approach can help us think about the role of algorithms in questioning unjust social conditions, recognizing the limits of algorithmic reforms, uh, and accounting for indeterminacy in algorithmic interventions. So as we think about the many broad challenges that we have, uh, towards using algorithms effectively in public policy. Um, I think this type of methodological shift uh, represents one uh, central and important type of change uh, to be combined with some broader social and political and institutional reforms that will also be required to uh, both mitigating the harms of algorithmic policy interventions and also beginning to pursue uh, new visions uh, new, more ambitious, more egalitarian visions of the role that algorithms can play in public policy.